nothing has to last forever. Even a dream, it could be a temporary thing and it matures into something else. And that was quite nice to know that really. It's okay to go off and try things and come back and try something else and have a revised view. And, and you know, I, I, in many ways now I celebrate that aspect of myself that I had the courage. Okay, shall we start with how you grew up? Okay, <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in a small mining town in the north of England. You can probably hear from my accent, but I've got a bit of a northern inflection. Um, it was a it was a mining town until the 80s. So um, I lived there from the 70s and the mines were closed in the 80s under Thatcher. And, you know, I won't go into detail about the miner strikes, but uh, I do remember going to the to the mine, my, my mother used to work there in the canteen, in the kitchen, and I used to go there for lunch. Coal mine? Coal mine, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the whole community was based around the coal mine. In um, Yorkshire? Uh, in Lancashire, yeah, Lancashire, Cheshire border. Uh, but yeah, as I grew up, I, um, I kind of got interested in technology. I, I got a computer <clears throat> when I was in my teens. And that's when home computers were first emerging. Um, I had a ZX Spectrum, which some people may remember as one of the first kind of home computers. And I just got lost in that. I just found it fascinating. I love the idea that you could kind of interact in worlds that people had made for you. And, you know, just I just kind of fired my imagination. Now, obviously, looking back at the kind of games they had now, then, they're kind of very... Um, primitive compared to what we do what we play now but there was just something magical about that uh, and that's kind of what led me into uh, a career in technology now as a as a young as a, as a child I think one thing that influenced me quite a bit and one thing that um, I still work on is I think my my voice was kind of suppressed and I think that's probably true for many children where they, you know, children are quite outgoing, but there was a certain amount of discipline around, you know, how far you can go to be heard. And I'd often be told to, you know, limit that and not be so loud. By your parents or at school? Yeah, by my parents. Um, it was mainly around, like, I, I shifted to move in with my step family after my parents divorced when I was quite little. And, um, I think I was quite an outgoing child, but I think that was viewed as being a bit um, untoward. And so... Just um, in that family? Or do you think it's kind of a broader thing in the culture of the North or something like that? Well, it's a good question. And I think there are... There's probably... The, the family had a lot to do with it, but I think it was a, it was a working class family. Um, and... In a working class family, there are probably certain ways of, of being, and maybe maybe that maybe that's not an unfair generalisation, but um, it could have been friction with my stepfather because my I remember my grandparents, and I was very close to my uncle, and uh, they kind of encouraged me to perform and, and to and to play act, so there was. It was in contrast, I think, really, to maybe to the way my my step family was. 
And I always remember that because I think in my, you know, in my teaching, I talk about the openness of children and the way that they communicate and how it is suppressed. And I think I fell victim to that. And I can't say it was a particularly, um, it was happy in some respects, but it was also tempestuous in others. There was, you know, the arguments between my, my mother and my stepfather and that would make me a bit nervous. And I think that was something that continued. And because of that, I started to hide away a little bit and, and I started to feel a bit anxious around, you know, the my, my stepfather and my... <laughs> and my... Uh, so the lights have just gone off in this office, which I completely forgot that would happen. Uh, so if I move around a little bit, or you just carry on. Yeah. <laughs> the moody lighting. Um, yeah, um, it, it made. I, th- I think it's probably common to be surrounded by conflict as a, as a small child can make you kind of nervous and to, and to then avoid conflict. Would it get violent? A little bit, yeah, a little bit. Um, they'd be hitting, you know. So that, that affects you quite a lot. So actually, as a child, I was quite nervous and shy. And would you get caught up in that? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I, I would. Um, that was part of it, yeah, absolutely. Were there other children in the household? There were, yeah. So I had my step uh, siblings, my stepbrother, my stepsister for a small period, although she she moved up, she moved away. <coughs> um, I do have a, a real brother, but he, when my mum and dad split, he went with my dad, and I went, I went with my mum. So, but I suppose the the important thing here is that as a, ch- children are quite born quite open, <laughs> and um, when you are faced with conflict and a certain amount of um, you know what, what you feel is quite violent and, and an actual hitting, you can withdraw. And and I uh, I did, and um, it affected me in that I became quite shy. Uh, not only shy, but quite um, it affects your self esteem massively, and it also affects how you relate to others. So I would be very affected if somebody, if I felt somebody didn't like me. You know, it's like I I invested my well-being in, in, in others. So I became very sensitive to how people were. And these are, these are things that I, I kind of bring now into, <laughs> into, into my teaching because I, I recognize that this is something, it's not just me that goes through this experience, but um, this sense of worthiness and the sense of the ability, how far you can go in terms of self-expression is very much determined by what happens to you as a child, I mean, obviously, this is what therapy is based on. So, um, did you? Was it obvious to you that that was having an impact on you at the time, or did you realize later in life? I think it, it was later that, that I became more objective. Um, there were epiphanies, you know, as you, as you get older and you start to mature and you start to talk about these experiences. 
the way you start to realise that it impacts you. And, and it has become a lifelong project, I think, to not only for me to overcome it, but to, to try and bring that into my teaching to help other people. So, you know, I remember the idea of presenting, the idea of standing up in front of others, the idea of being the centre of attention. It was kind of terrifying because I was raised not to <laughs> to do that. And, and the impact of um, the conflict that I experienced as a child made me more withdrawn. So I found, although I had really good friendships, I have to say, but I found solace in those friendships. And I had, I, this is not, this is like not 100% of the time, with other members of my family, I had great relationships too, and I found solace there. But the experiences inevitably impacted, you know, my personality. Mm -hmm. Was it like an alcohol-fueled thing where it would, you could kind of know if something was going to happen or it was... It's interesting you ask that because, yes, there were occasions when alcohol played a role, absolutely. <clears throat> the one thing about, um, I mean, Britain generally, um, but growing up in the Northwest, alcohol is a fabric of the, of the culture. And it, it kind of still is to, to a certain degree. But I think um, adding alcohol to the mix, it, it made the um, people drinking it more volatile. And so that added an extra level of panic, knowing that had somebody been drinking and knowing that I'd experienced them, them whilst drunk, well, I, you know, obviously I was, I was too young to be drinking. Um, yeah, it, it became uh, quite a fearful experience actually, because you know they would they would lose their inhibitions, and and there were times when it would be yeah it would be unpleasant. And did you get on with your step siblings? Not so much. <laughs> no, no, that was another thing. I think I was quite different to them. I mean, I was I was quite a, I was quite a shy and generally just um, I don't know quite happy go lucky child and I, it, unfortunately the, the step-sibling relationship relationship developed into conflict again and I was I was a bit more academic than they were I was more into school I was achieving a bit more they didn't like that um, and we just didn't really get along you know I was taken into this new environment with the step family so yeah I I struggled with that and I had that additional conflict to deal with with my with my step siblings yeah. what did your stepdad do sorry i have so many <laughs> questions <laughs> always i'm like what did your stepdad do what did your dad do what was your relationship yeah. like with your dad yeah what did he do as a profession mm. uh yeah my stepdad was a painter and decorator initially though he moved into different things he he bought a fish and chip shop um and he uh, you know he would do like building work, things like that. But yeah, when, when I first met there, he was a painter and decorator, he used to, he used to do houses. My dad was a surveyor um, for the council and um, I didn't see him a lot, saw him occasionally. Um, if anything, I had a probably closer relationship with my uncle who was, <clears throat> he worked in chemistry. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what he did. Um, but he was a really lovely guy and very influential on me, I think, because he 
he was so lacking in judgment. He would just take things as they were. I mean, he encouraged me to study. He was, he was very um, focused on academic achievement. And, and that was good because I was, you know, I, I had some ability there. So it was nice to have that kind of understanding. And it makes a big difference when you have an adult who is showing you empathy. Uh, and and I'm not, that, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, go, well, I'm not saying I never got that at home, but he was, it was just constant, really, you know. And that's your mum's brother? It's my dad's brother. Yeah, yeah. And everyone was in the same town? Pretty much. Um, there were small, they're small towns, they're neighbouring towns, but they were, they were within a few miles of each other, yeah, pretty mm-hmm. close. Yeah. My brothers went to school in Lancashire, actually. For Did a they? In, near Clitheroe. So Clitheroe, right. we would go yeah. up a fair bit, but... Yeah. yeah. It's so beautiful up there. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really realise at the time, but I was kind of living in the country. <laughs> and uh, now I'm living in a big city. Um, when, I see the, when I go up there and I see the, the, how sparse it is and how much countryside there is around there, I realised I was living in the country. But, um, and I... And I I enjoyed that, uh, you know, that aspect of it. And, and I've got to say, I've got so many happy memories of, of, of growing up there. But I think that, obviously, the conflict that I experienced in the step family um, had such a big impact on me uh, that uh, it's something I'm still, you know, working on to this day. And I guess was the mood, the mood would have been quite depressed if... So many people were losing their jobs from the mines. Well, yeah, towards towards the eighties, it got it got a bit gloomier. But then again, that's something I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of, because for me, as I was um, growing up in the eighties, I became a, much more aware of culture, and I remember Channel Four appeared, and that was a revelation because it was full of arts programming and obscure films and things that you wouldn't ordinarily see and I kind of gravitated towards that it was it was fascinating to me this kind of um, experimental kind of media and just new ideas alternative comedy Um, that was quite exciting and music started to interesting music started to emerge Uh, so yeah I've got a lot of happy memories around the kind of music and culture that I experienced in the 80s and um, I don't, I, I don't, re- I wasn't really part of the kind of socio-economic political landscape. I kind of, yeah, I didn't watch the news, you know, I was much more into kind of like watching things on TV. Uh, so I'd often watch things in my room alone because I had a portable TV, so I'd kind of step away from the from the family and, um, you know, I had quite a solitary sort of experience of, of, you know, TV culture, although I would share it with my friends. I had a good, good network of friends, so... Um, and you had a happy time at school. Yeah, more or less. It was it was fine. It was okay. I I, I don't I, I can't say it was um, too troublesome. There were good and bad times, but it was it was fine. Um, it was it wouldn't say it was successful in as much as I wanted it to be. Um, I did okay. You know, it got me to university eventually, but a few challenges along the way <clears throat> to get the grades I needed. Uh, but I think that because of my friend network, friends network, that was what made it good. Uh, yeah. So. And what idea did you have for what you'd do after school? Well, because I got into computers, 
I just thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. So I wanted to do computer science at university. Um, I mean, I, I think at that age, it's hard to, to pinpoint what exactly what you're going to do. I was comfortable with computers. I was fascinated by them. I was intrigued by them. It was just something that I felt actually had a creative element to it. Um, and I just thought, yeah, this is, this is the way to go. You know, this is going to get me out into the bigger world. Um, so I didn't, it wasn't difficult for me. Having said that, there was part of me that liked art and liked reading. But one of the things, which is a real shame actually, um, I think when I came to do my A-levels, <clears throat> I did want to do things like, I was, I was interested in philosophy. I was, you know, I wanted to do that kind of thing. But there was a kind of message of, no, no, focus. You stay, stick to the sciences, don't get distracted. And I think that was a shame. Coming from school or family? Um, a bit of both, yeah, a bit of both. Like I remember having a discussion when I was choosing my levels at a college, and they were like, "No, no, don't do those. You know, just just focus." Um, and there was a certain element of that, like a sense of frivolity around doing things which weren't um, vocational. And I think that's part of the the culture as well. It's like you know, don't you know, it's a waste of time. Why would you study that? Which I think is a shame because I think young minds open to studying these things they will find their way uh, and I think I felt you know I, I think I've worked on regret <laughs> a lot and I'm fascinated by regret because it, it's a terrible thing to to have because you kind of there's nothing you can do about the past but it kind of haunts you sometimes and it's <laughs> how to overcome that and I, and I look back on these decisions and I think that you know what? what what did I know at the time I did what I decided to do what I did with the to the best of my ability and that's kind of I have to accept that <laughs> but at, at the time it would have been nice to have had those, that, those extra options to, to explore a bit more but you can learn about it now as well um, yes exactly It's there is only the now I guess that's the thing and the other the other thing I, 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 I want to mention that I was interested in and I, I gravitated towards this in my teens it was um, magic and I mean like the occult magic, not like magic tricks. I, I what just, do you mean? Well, it was, it was really interesting. I was in a physics class and one of my physics teachers was talking about astral projection. I don't know if you've heard of this, the idea that you have like a, an astral body and it can leave your body and travel. And, uh, and I thought, wow. I mean, you know, aside from <laughs> whether it's how dubious that belief might be. Uh, it, would just, it just completely fascinated me, the idea that there was more possible. There's more possible in the world offered than the, the material world offered. And I went to my local library and I would, I would lap up these books on magic and, and like the supernatural and I'd be like fascinated by it. And I still am, in a way. I mean, I, I've come to kind of understand it in, in different ways, but um, yeah, I, I would find that extremely interesting. How have you come to understand it? because <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm really interested in I mean maybe not from the magic mm. side but from like consciousness and like mm. manifestation we talk about it a lot on this podcast which mm. can either be like some cringe thing or it can just be a bit you know and then it comes in with faith and it's like it can help you live your life in a more 
I feel like a lot of people, you know, spiritual stuff. It's like a lot of people access it coming from depression or something like that. Because if you, yeah, because otherwise you're like nihilistic. Like what's the point in anything? But Mm. then if you find meaning and stuff and then you can play, you know, ask for signs and like see things and coincidences that don't make sense. And Yeah, that's right. I mean, signs, fascinating because I can't. I say there are very few people that don't say that they have found signs and indicators and signposts. It happens all the time. Uh, and if, you, if you're if you open to seeing these things, now some would say, oh, look, these things are just always there. You just, you just notice what you're looking for. But so you're, yeah, yeah, I mean, the whole idea that there is just the material world and it functions just like that. Okay, fine. But even quantum physics is starting to introduce notions of consciousness and how consciousness may influence uh, how we experience the world around us. And, you know, the the fact that consciousness is something that we haven't demystified and that the reality is something that is essentially a something something that our brains invent in accordance with radiation that's coming that's coming from outside of us you know the sight sounds all of this kind of stuff and obviously working as a voice teacher knowing that sound is essentially just vibrations in the air but it the way that it affects us is, is much more profound and so magic presents this idea of the universe as having some kind of um, underlying mechanism whereby Things essentially working on yourself and your own ability to the way you can think can can start to affect the way around you. Now, this is magical thinking in a way, and magical thinking we have to be careful of because it can, if taken to the wrong extreme, it can implicate people in saying that they invent, they invite things upon themselves. Mm. <clears throat> you know, we have to be careful yeah. of, of that sort of thing. But um, one of the things that was a real eye-opener for me is as I was reading all of these occult books, looking at the images and all of the kind of... There's a lot of religious imagery. Wait, what are the books? Occult books. So, the, <coughs> so like, I don't know if you ever heard of Alistair Crowley. He was a Victorian magician, poet, and he, wrote, he was very, very influential. Um, and he wrote many, many books on the occult and... The Western mystery tradition. <laughs> I didn't think we'd be getting into, into this, but the, there's this whole kind of belief system around magic and rituals, and I was fascinated by the idea of ritual and what ritual is and how it can influence us. And interesting. Does yeah. this get into like witch stuff as well? Yeah, I mean that that's that's definitely um, an, a, one of the sort of disciplines around magical practice, you know. Um, but it. It's, it's fascinating in that one of the interpretations of it, and this is something that um, I was written in a book, which was written, written a long time ago, is that the idea of these external spirits and whatnot is really just a, a metaphor for parts of the mind. <laughs> so um, the idea that you could conjure a spirit and it could teach you a language wasn't really what was happening what was really happening is that somehow this ritual would stimulate some part of your brain which would 
make it more conducive to being able to develop a certain skill. Now, if you think about a lot of hypnosis and uh, hypnotherapy, you start to see where this kind of has some credibility because what you're doing there is trying to access your subconscious to influence your behavior. So that's, if you make the connection there, it doesn't seem quite as ridiculous. Mm. And what the magical teaching is saying is that you could go through some ritual process through the right symbols and colors and so on, abstract essentially representations to start to stimulate some aspect of yourself. And, and it's, on the magical thing is kind of more a more extreme, it's, like, it's quite tied in re- with religion really and all the kind of mystical um, ideas around religions, like all religions have their mystical kind of branch where they start to look into, they start to model the universe and all of the things that are going on. Um, but in a modern approach, you do start to feel see some overlaps, especially with the way neuroscience, you know, models part of the brain and how we have neural pathways which can be modified by, you know, by regular habits and and I suppose in a way it could be viewed as a very ancient means of self change, <laughs> um, and that's kind of more, 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 my modern interpretation is that it's now you you. Believing in demons, that's that's a wholly di- that's a very different thing. But seeing as them as kind of representations of aspects of ourselves starts to get a bit more interesting. And that's where that old, these old ideas start to have some kind of use and utility. Um, and, you know, with modern kind of shadow work and Jungian psychotherapy and, you know, Jung himself wrote extensively on... Ma- you know, magic and the occult and the symbols of the occult and what that could mean and the tarot cards, all these kind of archetypal images, the idea of the elements from the Greeks, all of this stuff kind of, you, you can kind of see modern counterparts that don't demand superstitious belief necessarily. I mean, I'm making big leaps here. <laughs> oh my God, I love this stuff. Yeah, no, because I've had my therapist on this podcast who I do hypno... The part therapy that I was telling you about. Um, internal family systems. So it's like you, through the subconscious, you access these parts of yourself, which is like people know the ego or inner child. or, And yet even, you know... It's like talking about someone's demons, but actually this model is, there's no bad parts. You, all parts are like, you, like you don't demonize them because if you demonize them, they, you know, everyone knows if you try and like, restri- you know, you have a bad habit and you try and like restrict it or something, but this thing is so powerful and it will just make you like eat all the donuts or like <laughs> whatever it is. Like, mm. so it's so anyway, but through hypnosis, I've, experience these things that are crazy like images and stuff coming to me like ancestral type stuff like messages from like i don't know if it's bullshit like it could be bullshit but i'm not making it up like i experienced that so Mm. my brain came up with these images and these stories and stuff that's like so vivid and even my brother who's passed away he's like i've had like 
interaction and it's not like a planned like medium thing of like it's like oh now we're going to access someone from the other side it's like no it's like going through these things and then these I guess spirits or whatever it is will come and it's it's like a real it's like it's like that's my experience so Mm. and I don't have some agenda to like make this stuff real because I'm like a very logic based science person so but all I can say is like yeah that's and yeah so it's like why the brain does that yeah we don't know but it's Mm. that's the point like we don't fully understand consciousness we don't even know where it is like it doesn't exist in our head it's like beyond that so it's like yeah well, that's, I mean, that's really interesting because what you're experiencing there, coming from within, not things that you're consciously choosing to experience. Um, and what does it, what are they? What does it mean? How do we then kind of encode that experience to be, to integrate it in, into ourselves? I mean, and it can be scary. I think that's, obviously, I mean, some people find a shortcut to this experience through the use of like psychedelic drugs and uh, and and the unpreparedness and uh, you know that's what that's why it can be can be terrifying um but i think through the right uh, avenues it can be enlightening it can be fascinating and and then you start to understand where these ideas of angels and demons come from um are they just aspects of our psyche that are somehow personified is it because when we dream we experience people and these narratives and these these behaviors and they're represented to us not necessarily in words but in these images and the subconscious kind of delivers us these things and there's something going on so um it, in like like you say through through modern therapies they kind of they kind of embrace these things and i think they should like even in um acceptance and commitment therapy where they talk about inner voices and to try and distance yourselves from this negative voice give it give it an appearance you know there's uh, there's the, the idea that you kind of you give it this this name you give it an appearance you kind of separate it so you feel like it, it's it's a demon essentially there's no what's the difference between that and the old you know the old uh, occult teachings of summoning demons it's this kind of what you're doing you're creating a thought form um, and it's it's emboldening you to realize, well, wait a minute. I recognize that this exists within me. I'm giving, I'm fleshing it out with all these details, but by shining a light on it and giving it a personality, I'm, I'm able to kind of distance itself. It's not, it's not just me. It's, it's something at work within me. The many, the many programs, the many aspects of our our consciousness. Um, And so we can then, I'll live with it. (laughs) <laughs> a bit better and rather than battling and and feeling that I'm you know I'm, there's something wrong with me you know it's, 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 it's one of the many dimensions of human consciousness it's, it's really fascinating and that's the point as well on how you said you can't change the past but through using these tools you can access you know you can go back to that version of yourself who needed something and will yeah probably desperately needed love or to be told it's safe i mean not that you didn't get love but to be told like it's safe or and so you can do that through using neuroplasticity to like nurture parts of yourself that 
need some and then it's like in a way it like heals the past and it's mm. it's crazy because then you're not carrying that around with you like I've had to heal so many things <laughs> from my past like four year old versions of myself that affect how I behave today but then by healing them it's like changes the mm. present and it's like so powerful it's amazing isn't it because <clears throat> you don't it's like somebody turning the air conditioning off you don't you don't know it's working and it's operating until it's till it goes away <laughs> and it's fu- it's transforming um all of the uh, invisible operations that have become unconscious now uh, and that affect how we operate uh, to you know whether you do it through therapy or, or whether we, you know you do it through physical practices or whatever however you find it and I've no doubt that some people do find these through more kind of mystical practices um, I mean remember meditation or is born from you know the a more mystical tradition but it's obviously finding utility now in the modern world and it's been proven scientifically to be valuable so there's an example of something from an old teaching which has been you know shown to be of use um as we and the more we experience the mind and the more we open it up to what and 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 to try and recognize that we are we are we are are so heavily influenced by our, our early period of development and we can find ways to, because obviously in voice teaching I talk about that, because the voice becomes the habitual voice rather than the natural voice that we, and the power that we have available to us. But it's not just the power that we have available to us in the voice, it's the power that we have available to us in all other aspects of of, of our expression and our thought. So yeah, it's, and, and nobody's immune to this, you know, we, we've all experienced things which will which, which determine who we are, and not just in our in our minds, but in our bodies, very much so. <clears throat> how we, our posture, you know, how we um, hold ourselves, uh, the tension in our muscles, all that, you know. Books like The Body Keeps the Score, you know, they, they talk extensively about this. Um, and so we, we have to recognize that it's, the mind body that that thing is it's, it's just it's a historical record <laughs> of all the, all all these experiences mm. and um and then as we grow up we start to recognize well actually how do i how do i heal you know and this is this is great the great the conversations around trauma with you know gabo mate is starts to acknowledge the experience trauma has and whether it goes you know because it can manifest through addictive behaviors and that again is a fascinating field about what what do we constitute as addiction um and um now we we're starting to understand more the effect of trauma on on on, on how we behave and and ultimately i guess we just want to be freer and more content as as, as human beings so we can we, we can feel that we're being authentic you know, not always happy that you can't be happy all the time but authenticity i think is what we're what we're looking for isn't it it's that sense of yes i'm doing something of, of value i don't know if you ever read um zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance by robert piercing and that it's one of the books i always remember and it's it's fiction but he just talks about this idea of value and 
you know, using the motorbike, the repairing and uh, of it, doing it yourself, having a value, having investment in something, taking the scenic route, not the functional, you know, that we live in a very utilitarian society now. It's all about shortcuts, quick, get there quick, get there fast. In fact, I've done that. What's the next thing I need to do? But the idea of this in the moment experience of something, having that value, it comes through in the, you know, if something's being made with value, with real sense of engagement, kind of kind of comes through in it whether it's uh you know a bit of furniture or whether it's a uh, a bit of music or you know that, that real engagement that, that sort of sense of right i'm going to take my time over this uh why am i talking about this <laughs> uh but i but i think that um i remember his, him talking about this idea of value and i think uh that sense of being able to do to express what is valuable to you that you know set, what are your values and how do you express them? And um, getting to the heart of, you know, what, what, how would you like to feel your life should be lived? Um, and voice work for me is part of that because it, it, it enables, you know, clearer communication and enables more expression. Um, but yeah, I think that we are living in a world that can often feel pull us away from from ourselves in terms of. Um, being being able to just be satisfied with what we, what we have to a certain degree or just you know we, we live in a capitalist society which works to a degree but the, the need to grow the need to be to buy more the need to consume gives us this kind of anxiety and I, I was listening to a really interesting interview with uh, David Foster Wallace the uh, novelist who sadly took his own life um, when he was quite young but it's a great interview, and he's he's he was just talking about now how we when faced with like nothing to do, or you know we just just to just have nothing in front of us, people have this sense of dread. <laughs> it's like there's anxiety that builds in us when we, you know, that's why we have to get our phones out, or we have to we have to occupy ourselves or flip on the TV, uh, and I think it's because the anxiety is a symptom of needing stimulation because we have been addicted to dopamine so the addiction has become it's not just about drugs anymore it's about behavioral addiction um, and the problem with that is it's, it can stand in the way of this value experience of doing so. how many times have you have people sat for two hours and just worked on something and the, and the the joy and the experience and you know the depth and the, what that reveals to you, and now it's quick, has to be quick, oh, I've got a message, and it just kind of, it's not easy to do this kind of thing, because you, you will feel anxious, it just because you're not getting a reward, you know, it's like, oh, this isn't so much fun, I, I want my reward, I want my social media message, that's, my brain is firing some dopamine, that feels better, Whew, you know, it's like the cigarette has become a digital experience in a way, um, but I think that living experiencing anxiety as something as actually a fruitful thing where you can just embrace the anxiety and you sometimes use it as a signal that you're actually maybe doing something of value that's become something recently i've become fascinated by cool um, okay wait so what's your path <laughs> To voice Sorry. teaching. Yeah. <laughs> no, massive digression. No, it's uh, great. It's great. Um, but I, I want to get to the voice teaching, the 
part because then it's so interesting because some of these things you're saying, I'm like, that's it with what you were saying earlier before we started recording about finding the balance between doing your work in tech and doing the acting or the voice stuff. And that is about filling your life with things that are meaningful, right? Rather than this like end goal, like when you can switch from like chasing that. Because that's kind of how we're set up from school. It's like, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? But then at some point, mm. it's like, <laughs> either you just keep making up arbitrary next things or you're like actually enjoying the present moment of your life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of experienced that when I graduated from university and I, I got a job um, for like a big company as a computer programmer. I in London? It was in Nottingham, actually. Yeah. Uh, I kind of panicked. I saw my whole life stretching out ahead of me and I saw people that had been in the same job for 40 years and I was like, is this it? Uh, and I really did panic a little bit. Um, luckily, I was I was very lucky to find a way out because I, I then um, badgered my way into doing a PhD at Nottingham University. Um, at that time, virtual reality was getting, getting a bit uh, exciting and started to emerge. And uh, that was really cool. This whole idea of cyberspace, and and I, I started to study something that was that had an overlap with that, and I um, loved it because just being in that academic environment, it was more freeing, it was more creative, and it was it's just you know I this is when I started to question <laughs> my choices because I, I started to think well this is this is kind of more fun than just straight out programming. This is this is really interesting, stimulating. But anyway, one thing led to another, and I. Um, I stayed with the university and I worked as a researcher and I collaborated with a group of artists called Blast Theory um, who were doing amazing work. Uh, they were doing this kind of mixed reality stuff where they were projecting computer graphics onto shower water spray and performers were walking through as if they were coming out of the virtual world and this kind of stuff. And they kind of, it's kind of a pivotal moment where they let me perform. <laughs> And I thought, oh, wow, this is this is amazing. I, I, I don't need any machines. I just need my body. That's all. And and I suddenly thought, this is fascinating. And I'd always had a certain amount of respect for acting because I think the idea of being able to adapt yourself to a different character and to experience the world as that character, that's that kind of meta level <laughs> where you can kind of jump into different um, people was, was really interesting how, how people could do that. Uh, and so that kind of triggered my interest in acting. So one thing led to another. I did like acting in the evening. So you were programming for them and then they... Pretty much, yeah. I was doing all the tech. I was like doing, supporting the software and, and they just said, oh, let's let him perform. I think I did a terrible performance because I was grinning the whole time, which I think back now I thought, bit of an amateur. <laughs> but it was something you wanted to do. But they, I was curious to do it, but I was, I was kind of scared. But um, they were great, and they gave me that opportunity. It was it. It was for five minutes. It was hardly anything, but just having a taste of it, um, I thought, "Wow, this is something I want to explore further." And so I did uh, evening classes in acting uh, in Nottingham, and had some great teachers. And when I finally moved to London again for a programming job, I, uh, I continued to pursue acting, and it took off. And it was just for fun initially when you started? Yeah, I guess I just I just loved it. I just enjoyed it. 
I loved the whole thing of getting together with other people that doing the physical stuff. It, I started to come out of my shell a, a little bit. Um, and I just started to get into the, reading the plays and I found the writing interesting and just the whole idea of rehearsing. And the, to be honest, my first performance, absolutely terrified. I was absolutely terrified. And, what uh, was it? It was a monologue <clears throat> from a Stephen Burkoff play. That was my first proper performance that I did. And I was terrified all day. But um, afterwards, just felt elated. You know? and, and this is another thing, you know, that you have to do these things. <laughs> you know, I just keep... If, if the initial drive is there to kind of get involved in something, go with it. Uh, and then see where it takes you. Um, and I, I've got to say, I don't know if the stage fright has ever left me. Um, I think that's part of the reason why... I haven't done as much acting because I felt it got in the way too much. I don't think I ever conquered it in the way that I would have liked to, but then again, I don't know if anyone does. Um, but yeah, I, I I just love the whole experience. And then I went, came to London, which is like full of opportunities for acting, did acting in various colleges, and people were applying for drama schools. I thought, yeah, why not? <laughs> but I, I never thought in a million years that I would be able to go to drama school because I thought financially I wouldn't be able to go to drama school, but it just kind of happened. And uh, I went to drama school and did a year as a, as a kind of a mature student. How old were you at that one? 37, I think I was, yeah. <laughs> so pretty late by acting standards. Um, and did you feel, like, worried about... Or did people in your life have opinions about it? Or it was just like... Yeah, I think my <laughs> my parents didn't really know <laughs> what I was doing. I was in London. They just thought I was doing my regular job. Um, when I said I was going to school, they were like a bit quizzical, but they didn't really un understand what was going on. Um, I was still doing some work part-time to keep up my income a little bit. Uh, but yeah, they, they were sort of, I don't know, they, they didn't quite register. <laughs> were you, uh, what about at work? Like, were you open about that you did acting and people yeah whatever. yeah I had good friends they'd come to see my shows uh, and um, you know I, I did a show at the City Lit which is where we met and um, they would come and see they'd find it fun they'd, they'd, they'd love it that I was involved in these things because they you know they get to meet other people and you know we it was quite a sociable thing so yeah it was, it was good um, it was quite positive the whole thing was very positive really and it was only when I left drama school and I tried to work as an actor that stuff got real. Uh, and it became like, wow, this is kind of hard now. You know, I've got to try and get work. And work might mean just like a few minutes, a few seconds in, a, in an advert. And it was the realism of it kind of hit me. And I thought, this isn't really why I got into this. Huh. You know. What, because it just becomes clear, it's like, okay, I need to make money, and... Yeah, yeah. What's going to pay? Yeah, I needed, I needed to make money. I mean, I had a flat that I'd, I had a mortgage on, and, you know, I had responsibilities there. So, yeah, I, need, I needed to make money, and I was... I did what was probably the worst job I've ever done, which was theatre and education. Uh, where you tour schools and you do a play. Uh, I, I loved 
loved the kids' reaction. I loved the whole kind of performance element, but the reality of it, the logistics of getting up at 5.30, traveling to the schools, setting the set up. There were only two of us, a huge set. It would take about 45 minutes. Sometimes we'd have to do two of those a day. In fact, normally we'd have to do two a day. That kind of hit me pretty hard. And I was never an early riser. I still, I'm still not. Uh, so, yeah, the reality was very different to the to the, the idea. <laughs> and it soon became apparent to me that actually, I don't know if this is a great lifestyle change for me. You know, the idea that you could just walk into I'd like a BBC drama or walk into the perform at the National or the Globe. No, no. Because <laughs> no. it's like so ultra competitive and it's like you have to yeah. know the right people or be in the right kind of networks or something yeah I think you've got to well it's harder it is harder when you start older I think if you've got like a legacy of of, of a career behind you that, not to say that people don't make it in acting um, it's harder I had a very low opinion of my, of my acting ability <laughs> to be honest I didn't think because often because of the nerves I, I felt it very hard to kind of relax in front of the camera or Stage, not so, not as bad. And I had some really good moments, but generally, I don't know. I think I was deterred by my lack of success initially. And I just felt, oh, this isn't working out. And I, I, get, I don't really have the time to hang around because I've got, I've got bills to pay. Hmm. You know, if, if I'd gone all or nothing, maybe things would have been different. But then I think like, what was the judgment of success? What if I got a part in EastEnders? Would I have really wanted to do that? I don't know. Would have I enjoyed it that much, really? What would have been your dream? Doctor Who. That's what I wanted to be, or or like a regular appearance in Shakespeare at the Globe, or you know things like that. Things like really interesting um, performances in theatre, um, being in a Henry Miller play. You know, just my favourite kind of playwrights, really. So yeah, that would have been great. Having a, re- a regular job in a in a in a paid job in a in a good theatre, um, doing films, you know that kind of stuff, but it just didn't happen, you know. And, um, so I I don't know. I I just thought oh, this isn't happening. So I I need. To... So were you going to tons of auditions and? A few, yeah, but I didn't get an agent either, which was a d- deterrent. So which made me think, well, maybe you know I'm. Not not that great, or I don't know what happened. But I did. We did a showcase at a theatre, but I didn't get an agent. So yeah, I had to. I eventually got involved with a co-op, which is uh, run by actors. It's a cooperative agency. It's, but again, I didn't get much work through that, and that was a lot of work. It was just a. It was really interesting. It was this idea. I mean, I've been very interested in this idea about chasing a dream versus the reality, and actually. I loved acting and, and that, but the working as an actor it didn't really work out. And I don't know if I wanted that necessarily. You know, I got the two mixed up. <laughs> mm. um, you know, I, I still I still would enjoy doing it, but the, the, the amount of hours that I had to invest in it without any reward, and it became apparent to me that I had to, I had to bring in some money. And I still do it occasionally, little bits here and there, but it was actually um, thinking about my experience in voice classes and and really enjoying it and loving the whole approach to voice teaching. It was very physical, 
you can involve lots of ideas from different disciplines. Uh, and I decided then, you know what, I'll, I'd like to become a voice coach. So I was very lucky that I applied to Central School of Speech and Drama, as it was then known. And um, I was accepted on the MA for voice studies. So I could, I could then train as a voice teacher, which was great. Yeah. And then what happened? <laughs> Well, uh, I the training was great, and I um, was lucky enough to get offered a job. <laughs> I became head of voice at um, a London theatre school, and uh, that was very challenging. I mean, when I think back, actually, the whole the whole experience of teaching voice was pretty scary. Um, I remember doing a placement, my first placement, and that was pretty scary. Getting in front of the students and having to lead a class for an hour or two hours a lot of preparation and even with the preparation you, you, you there was always an element of like fingers crossed let's hope this goes okay what was the fear i think it was being um there was a real sense of needing to make sure that what you were doing was super useful and um being confident in what you were teaching and i wasn't that was the big that was the problem I wasn't confident in what I was teaching because I hadn't taught it before and I only kind of understood it more in a theoretical way. And I think it comes with, it only comes with experience of teaching that you start to feel confident. And I had all my notes and I'd prepare the night before and I'd go through in my head and I'd teach this, this, this. And I kept referring to my notepad and yeah, it was it was pretty um, nerve-wracking. And I, luckily, I mean, generally it was, it went okay, but it was I was exhausted afterwards. Now, when I went to um, teach at a drama school full-time, well, it was, it was actually a part-time job. It wasn't a full-time role, but it was a lot of hours. I started to become a bit more confident then and started to become a bit more comfortable with, with what I was teaching. Um, however, <laughs> it uh, it was still... Um, financially, it wasn't, wasn't so good either. And, I, and again, I found the reality of... I mean, I sound a bit lame. I keep giving up on these things. I found the reality of having to do all the preparation. There was a lot of preparation because I think I set myself quite a high standard of what I needed to teach. And I wanted to make sure I was keeping it fresh in a way. So I would do a lot of preparation. And that meant that most of my spare time was, was spent reading and preparing. And, you know, I didn't want to just go over the same old thing. I wanted to feel like... I want to feel engaged in what I was teaching. I want to feel like I really believed it. I wanted to up my game all the time. So I set myself quite a high, high bar, but that meant that I was I was working quite a lot. And um, and then I found it was just, it was quite draining, really. And the repetition of teaching six, seven, eight hours a day, it's quite hard. Um, and so I, I don't know. And and interestingly, something something I found out is that the the logical problem-solving, computery side of my brain <laughs> felt neglected. And I was a bit surprised by that. It wanted to get its teeth back into the technical stuff. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I, I, I ultimately grew a bit disillusioned with it. Um, it could have been because I just went in the deep end, you know, teaching the head of voice at a drum school, and like, that's a lot of responsibility. But I, I don't know, I kind of missed a little bit what I'd done before, and I eventually... Um, cut my teaching down just to quite quite a small focus 
and I stuck with just some evening classes and then, and I went back to working in technology which is what I'd been doing on and off you know, throughout, throughout the whole years I'd been doing acting whilst I was working in technology then I went to drama school then I did some acting then I went, worked in technology so yeah and uh, I came back so and the transition yeah. back was fine yeah it was it was something of a relief really because uh, I don't know it's just I <laughs> I didn't I don't know why I didn't adapt too well to the the demands of teaching like getting up very early doing a warm-up at nine o'clock for me that was quite challenging and maintaining that energy throughout the day but thinking back some some of my best memories are around teaching and some of the rewards and seeing it work and being faced with that challenge of self-development for me as a teacher it was so good it was valuable but at the same time I I learned something really valuable in that nothing has to last forever even a dream it could be a temporary thing and it matures into something else and that was quite nice to know that really and were you able to accept that or did you kind of feel like a failure or something I have felt um, like I pursued the wrong thing and again that's when the regret engine kicks in because you think well why did I do that now I try to rationalize that because I say like if somebody stays in the same job for 20 years how is that any worse than going to do something for two years and then doing something for another year and then going back to do something else it's a diversion one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't pursue music because that's something that I've loved my whole life and I've tried to make some progress in and I still do and yeah not too late yeah well I'm still doing it and I, I was in a band for a while that was something I did and I love that and I, that'll never go away I'll, I'll do that forever um but uh, I've, I've kind of had to hand t- tackle regret head on because it is quite destructive. The decisions I made back then and the, and the passions I had were, were totally what was happening at that time. People change, experiences change, um, and, you, and, and I think it's okay. I always remember a quote by... Um, Robert Anton Wilson, who's a, he wrote this amazing book called Prometheus Rising. Very, I definitely recommend it. Uh, and he is a quote: "Specialization is for insects." <laughs> uh, and I think, yeah, as human beings, with the limited time we have on this earth, it's okay to go off and try things and come back and try something else and have a revised view. And you know, I, I in many ways now, I celebrate that aspect of myself that I had the courage, because. Why would I punish myself to say that I did the wrong thing when I wouldn't be doing if I'd been stuck in the same job for like 10 or 15 years or 20 years? I actually think it was a courageous thing to do. It may not have been the forever thing, but it changed me internally. And that is in in some ways just as important as the change in your external circumstances and what you're doing. And it's still part of what you're doing now, right? Because we're still teaching. Yeah, and I'm still teaching. And and the beauty of what I'm doing now is I have a very focused remit. And I can put so much more into that. Uh, And it's so important to me to to keep doing that. Um, And I learn every time I do it. (laughs) I I do. It's it's amazing how each... (laughs) 
you know, you're talking about signs earlier. Um, there are some things that come your way and students that come with ideas, like we wouldn't be doing this, you know. Um, and yeah, I, I am so pleased that I did what I did because it's opened up a whole new world of possibilities. It's just that things don't turn out the way you expect them to. Which is which is okay. <laughs> yeah, because they never do. No, you no, couldn't no. possibly imagine how you, anyone couldn't imagine how their life's going to turn out. It's yeah, you can't. Yeah, the future is utterly unknown. The future it just exists in our minds, uh, much like the past, really. <laughs> but the problem is, as human beings, we do this terrible thing where we revisit the past with our current understanding, and we try to readjust decisions that we made in our past. And that is utterly pointless because we were different people then, you know, in, even in small ways, we were just different people. We had a different set of circumstances and we made a decision based on what we felt was the right thing to do. And um, that was just what I did at the time. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really resonates with me because going, being like in finance and whatever, and then like, oh no, actually I want to do this podcast thing. But I had no idea, like I would the same thing. I missed using that part of my brain. And it's like, actually I love building financial models. And like just, be, and I love going to an office. Like who knew? I really love like having colleagues, having a place to go, like all of that. So it's like, actually, because people kind of project that onto you of like, oh, you're just waiting till it's successful enough so you can only do it full time. And it's like, no, like I don't want, like I want to do all these other things. Like, why can't I? And, but yeah, I think it's kind of, for me, it's like having more courage to, like, do you find that people are kind of like, oh, why are you teaching as well as working here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. They think it's a bit too much to do both. And it's interesting, like you're saying that, you know, you just enjoy doing financial models. And um, this is it. There's this kind of limited view that we should just do one thing and, you just have to do what you enjoy, uh, you know. And um, I actually really enjoy. Uh, I mean, I, I I still code a little bit. I've, I've been trying to build a website, get it off the ground for a while. I still I love using software. Um, music enables me to kind of marry that because I, I use technology. But yeah, no, it's. I think I think what you are hitting on there is an important thing. It's the feeling that we tell ourselves that we should limit what we do because other people's version of events or you know we might we might look at how it should be done um and uh, and that's one of the big lessons i've taken away from my experience of is you find your own way that's the most important thing and if you enjoy doing a podcast who knows where it might go um but if you also enjoy doing your your work why not you know why not you shouldn't you shouldn't cut one thing off because there's a sense that you have to, uh, and you um, you can do both. You know, you can absolutely do both. So I guess I mean I, I was relating to this. There was there was a um, the guy called Scott Galloway. He's a, he's a professor at NYU, and he I saw this YouTube video where he was talking about don't follow your passion. It's the worst advice anybody can give you. And I thought, that's interesting, but it kind of bothered me. <laughs> and I thought, well, look, I, I see people all the time like following passions because it, it sort of drives us, right? We see something that really drives us. But then what I think 
I started to think, well, I kind of did that. And I'm, maybe I'm proof that he's right. Maybe I shouldn't have done. But then I think, no, what perhaps what he means, and I don't want to say what he means, but what it means to me, I think, is that do what you love doing, but don't necessarily get fixated on a goal of becoming that job, you know. I, sh- I, I may go back to acting, uh, but it's not a failure that I'm not, I haven't won an Oscar because I, I loved acting, so I, di- I just got involved in it. I love music. I'm not, I'm not going to get to number one. I don't want to. I'm j- I just enjoy doing it. Um, you enjoy doing financial models. You feel good when you're doing it, you know. Um, it's not about the end destination. <laughs> it is about the process. And I think when I hear him say, don't follow your passion, because he qualifies that by saying, you know, you're not going to be, if you want to be a DJ or something, you're not, you're not going to be Jay-Z. Um, right. But if you love DJing, do it. But don't get fixated on being the professional necessarily and making all the money. Because that could be a distraction from what you really love doing. And yeah, that can kill it. Like having... Because I think I do that to myself. Like it has to be, it's like a perfectionist thing or it has to be this. Otherwise it's not worthwhile, but it doesn't have to be anything. It's like if you're enjoying and you're, right. you know, you're not hurting yourself. You're not hurting other people. Like you're not, you know, you're, it's how you're choosing to spend your time and live your life. And if you can be self-sufficient as well, which might mean figuring stuff out with, yeah, that's why it's funny that you're almost like it sounds lame about being like, actually, practical reasons. But it's not. It's like, that's kind of how we have, like, we have to be responsible for ourselves. Who else is going to be? And, like, what's yeah. wrong with wanting to live in a, like, nice place and have whatever, you know? It's like, mm. that's a good thing. It's weird, because in the US, that's, like, the only thing that people are focused on. And then... I don't know, in some other, you know, people talk about, you know, selling out or something. But it's like, why? If you want to, like, make money doing something that you like doing or whatever, or you want to be able to provide for a family or something, it's like, why? What's wrong with that? It's like... Exactly. A good thing. Yeah. And this is where I think it gets back to values. Rather than fixing on goals and destinations, can you just live out your values? And if your value is to be, to to have a comfortable home and, and to be able to um, enjoy what that brings to you, then why not live that out at the same time as doing creative pursuits and other other things? You, you know, you you have to, for me, I, it is at this, at this present, I've got to say, at this present stage of my understanding, <laughs> um, if you'd asked me this five years ago, I probably would have given you a different answer. But And, and this is the other thing, it's that we, we're constantly under a state of change. And that my present state is I feel that I am able to live out my values. And if anything gets in the way, then I will try and maybe limit that. If I feel that my work is getting in the way of me living out my values, then um, then I might make a change. Or if, the, if I recognize that there is a risk associated with something, but I feel like I'm, I'm good at it. Because once you start getting good at something, things start to grow around it you know when when you become proficient you 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 do kind of move into that space and you st- i think things come come your way 
But I think, unfortunately, we are more fixed on the, I want to be the Oscar winner, uh, rather than, I'm just going to go and do it. I'm going to take action. And, and it's the action for me, which is the, this is where it's ha- happening, not the final destination. So, and I think that was, that's what I recognised with my acting. I was, I was loving the acting. I probably wasn't that great at acting. I probably would never have won an Oscar. I'm, I'm, I look at great actors and I'm like amazed at how, how they can do it. Um, but I, at the time, it was something that was part of my value system and I, and I took it to its conclusion. And then I moved on to something else. <laughs> uh, and I have no regrets. Um, I, I try not to. Well, do I have no regrets? I, I don't. I think I probably do have regrets, but I have tried to reevaluate my relationship to regret. Yes, I probably made some bad choices, but don't we all? Yeah. And we will, I'll continue to make bad choices. <laughs> so that's part of being a human being. And but as long as you're learning from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've not done it, you know, it's like we're talking here about career choices and relationship choices and, you know, where you move to, things like that, Um, you know, but uh, we're not talking about terrible things, you know, know, obviously there are people that should should not have done certain things in their lives, but we're talking about just like choices in our life that um, we, we decided that took us on different paths, you know, I've had terrible in a dialogue about when I wanted to move to Australia and wishing I had um, in my early 30s. And uh, and I thought, what would my life be like? And that, But that's that terrible comparis- inner comparison mm. to the life that you um, you could have. And it, it's so, it's it's quite destructive, I think, to do that. Maybe you end up going in your 60s or something. I might. And that, great, exactly. So that's it, exactly. And I, I recently I've, I've sort of discovered this idea of radical acceptance and actually saying, well, instead of agonizing over what I could have done, you kind of, you say, <clears throat> oh, I fully accept things how, as they are. And the only thing I can change is what to do next. <laughs> I can change what I'm doing in the moment. That's where my energy goes. That's where I can make the change. Um, and so the past becomes uh, it's just... It's just a thing where I, I have to fully accept that that's that's what happened and that's the choices I made. So amazing. <laughs> um, oh yeah, we've gone over an hour. Okay, can you just give us some quick voice tips? Yeah, sorry, we haven't really we talked about voice work that very much. Yeah. Well, we kind of have because so the course I did was using your voice assertively. Yeah, yeah. and it's interesting how much we've kind of talked about the values because that's kind of the definition we came to, that's what assertiveness means, is living in your values. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I, I struggled to come to a definition of assertiveness when I was given that course. Um, but I think for me, assertiveness is about being able to express yourself according to your values, often in opposition to what might be happening around you. And, you know, we, we do make the distinction between aggressiveness and assertiveness. But as we say in the, in the class, it's not so black and white there are times when maybe you have to be very assertive we're all assertive in a way we we all make choices every day that that clearly would benefit us and the ones we love and and the things that we care care about but i think often people come to the class and they want to be assertive in ways that they maybe feel that they're not being assertive in whether it's in the workplace or in relationships or uh, in, in other choices so part of that is identifying what your values are and then thinking about how you can enact those values through action and what assertiveness means then to, to continue to live out those values. 
Uh, now, the great thing about voice work is obviously voice plays a pivotal role in our assertiveness. That's our communication, um, our verbal communication to the world. Um, and here we are <laughs> doing just that. So uh, as a voice teacher, um, it's, it's often not that mysterious. You know, you really have to go back to how we vocalize. And we vocalize through an intake of breath, which is triggered by the brains moving the diaphragm. We expire the breath. Um, the vocal folds come close together, they vibrate. They make a sound which resonates through spaces in our, in our neck and in our, in our head. And it's articulated into sounds, vowels and consonants and whatnot through our articulators, our lips and our tongue, our jaw, etc. So um, that simple process, unfortunately, we get in the way. We have tension in our shoulders. We have postural issues which might interfere with our breathing. We have shallow breathing, you know, we don't we don't breathe fully, we don't take as much air in as we as as we can. So breath work is important and, and voice work starts with physical work. It starts with recognizing the tensions that we hold. And it starts with realigning our posture and feeling a sense of the, the head just floating to the ceiling to to, to just try and ra raise our sense of um, height and just the sense of looseness in our body. As they say, tension is the enemy of the voice. So we start to get yeah, kind of loosen up a bit. Um, we start to recognize areas of tension, start to observe like clenching our jaw or holding our shoulders and just try and it disinhibit uh, that. It make the tension go away. And um, it's just a sense of not pushing, just like acknowledging it and saying, okay, I want the tension to go away. Now, obviously, there's a lot of physical practices to do this and various bits of work we can do. But one of the one of the things we can do is we can just lie down on the floor and just breathe deeply into our bellies and just see the movement. One of the things that you may notice in the, in the class is often how it's difficult for people to feel, feel movement in their bellies because they're breathing and they're using their shoulders, which just gets just gets in the way. So just recognize that as you breathe in, your belly moves out. And as you breathe out, your belly moves in and gently supports your breathing. And then we just try and deepen the breath through that very simple process. Sometimes you can count out to try and breathe out a little bit further and just make sure that the shoulders are not getting involved. So it's really a very gentle process of just getting back in touch with our basic breathing processes. And then we move into making sound and sighing out gently and bringing that into a hard, gentle sound. Um, and just going back to basics. Uh, so that we start to think about sound and there's a really great voice note from a voice teacher that is fantastic called Barbara Hausman. She says voice work is about feeling and not sound and I keep going back to this. So when you're when you're making sound, say you're doing a hum, you feel the vibration in your chest and you give yourself more breath because the breath gives you more power, more volume, more strength of vibration and it's about starting to fill the sound up but also not pushing forwards with the head, you know, keeping the head in balance, making sure the back of the neck isn't getting involved, keeping the chest muscle soft, sorry, the, um, the jaw muscle soft, uh, the tongue nice and easy, and just start to work with opening and releasing these spaces. Um, so a lot of it really is just centering the body again, getting the posture back to where it should be, uh, removing tension from the upper body, 
um, finding out how to breathe again, <laughs> uh, and then starting to build up the breath, and so you can give yourself more power. So the sound goes from ah uh, gentle uh, as it gets bigger, and you get more power. But matching that with intention to be heard, um, and as you know, in, the, in our course, in the course, the course uh, you, we, we, you were involved in recently. We do a lot of work around thinking about what communication is and the effect of changing the um, the listener, who, who your listener is. So you're less concerned with the, the destructive thoughts in your head of, oh, I've been, are they finding me interesting? You know, is, is, is what I'm saying worthwhile? And you really just think about why am I communicating? What is your objective in the communication? And getting back to that and just keeping positive uh, constructive kind of ideas in your head about why you're communicating um, so it's a big thing the voice voice work um, it starts with the basics think about how we speak get the body to support it remove bad habits get away from the bad habits of tension the bad habits of posture clenching our jaw all this kind of stuff the tension that lives in our bodies it's about removing that and then getting back to that basic education of releasing the breath through open spaces, opening the mouth, getting the resonance stronger through finding vibration by humming into our lips, mm, finding vibration into our chest, opening these spaces, and then just being comfortable. I mean, I think one of the most, most telling exercises that we did in the class is when we have people speaking with loud music and headphones, and the fullness of that sound, the, it's big and it's full and it's more resonant, and it highlights to me that what we have is a limit as to our, the perception of our voices. And if we don't hear our voices, suddenly we put all of this voice work into play. But the minute we turn the sound off and people hear their voices at their own level, a wall comes up and they pull back. And this is what voice work's about. It's about removing that wall so you can do this naturally and uh, release that voice. Because if you think about it, as babies, infants, small children, the power and the stamina they have it's, it's remarkable. But as adults, all about habits, the sense of self-consciousness, unfortunately that becomes kind of embodied within us and, and it locks us away. And so we're trying to open that, which I think maybe ties it in with what we were talking about earlier with the mental walls also. <laughs> so voice work is a physical process of releasing it, but it's also a mental process and, it, and it's about reducing the, the limits on, on what's, ha what's happened uh, over the years. My favorite exercise was the turnaround exercise. That oh, just, yeah. so it's like, so it's like everyone has their back against the wall. You have to try and make people turn around just using the words turn around. And it was so interesting how changing the way you're saying it, like the emphasis or the pitch or the volume, and how different people respond to different things. But then it makes you realize like, wow, your voice actually has the power to persuade someone to do something or to not do something. Mm. And it's like, wow, like I'm carrying this power. I, that like blew my <laughs> mind because it's like, especially with thinking about the future and stuff like that, it's like, no, actually you can, you have control over these things. Yeah, I think I told you it was like, I use that then the next day I think I was asking for a pay increase or something and I was like actually it's not like all set it's like the way I communicate this like really Absolutely. 
and not because we think about the content and the words, but it's literally like the tone matters and things like that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a really nice exercise because what you're doing is you have a very simple objective. Somebody's got their back to you and all you can say is turn around and they have to feel like they should turn around. Um, so you have a very simple objective and, a, and you have a very direct consequence of the success of that communication. And all you can do is play with those two words. <laughs> turn around and try all the different ways of speaking it. So it kind of distills it in a very, a very simple way. And when in reality, this is what we're doing. In the moment, we just have the word. And dictionary definition of the word aside, in the moment, when the word is full and expressed, and we have a real connection with it. This is where we get a bit woo-woo. But when you are really expressing your personal meaning and your personal intention through that word, that's when it starts to come to life. And that's when people start to feel affected by it. That's a kind of a magical process. So the words come alive and you send them out as messengers and they land and people feel feel what you're feeling that's that magical process of of verbal communication and you know this is why the the spoken word the human voice is such an extraordinary thing um because words have such depth and we don't we forget that because we we live in a society where it's really about data exchange you know it's rapid communication but when you go back to a word and what it means personally and how you can just really be in the moment and express that and explore it, then you, it starts to reveal itself to you in detail and depth and color and substance. Um, and that's where what we're aiming for here, <laughs> to get back to that joy of, of the word. And um, forget about the negative voices of oh just, you know you're too loud or you're too quiet or you know they're not they're not interested in all, all these things your appearance or whatever you just getting into the moment means so many things in so many different disciplines and being in the moment with voice work is giving that word your full imagination your full intention full breath released body and and you can feel it yourself you know you, you can surprise yourself with the words and you know this is why if you see a great performance you're affected by it because they are there <laughs> they're they're not racing through it they're really giving it so much detail and and that's why i think is a great one of the great joys of voice work where you kind of rediscover communication through voice through the body can you just before we wrap up, I have three last questions, quick ones to ask. But can you do your demonstration of what your voice used to sound like? <laughs> yeah, it? yeah, I will. So yeah, so the back the background here is that um, I mean I, I thought I, people would comment on my voice, and this is part probably something we didn't discuss, but part of my journey into voice work is people would comment on my voice and say, "Oh, well, you got a good voice, got an interesting voice." And, uh, and so my voice became part of my identity. Um, but actually, when I started voice training, I was a bit overconfident, really, because I realized that... So I had quite what you'd call a pharyngeal, like a chest-resonant voice. It was kind of withdrawn. So I'd um, probably talk a bit more like this, really. It was it was in my chest. 
and you know it was a bit held back it was deep people would make think oh interesting but it was it was held back and it was it, it was um pretty you know down here so then i did voice training <laughs> and then one of the parts of it was to develop the sense of resonating more in the mouth and sending the sound out with a bit more clarity so i'd keep the the bassy rooty sound down here but i would develop the oral projection and so that transformed it to being more clear more clear and that was um you know demonstrated to me that it does work <laughs> um the the voices the the instrument analogy with the voice is is important i think because it is very much an instrument but it's a very sophisticated instrument it's an instrument that can change shape and size um but a wind similar to a wind instrument you know it has a reed it, with the vocal folds you know it vibrates it has open chambers where it resonates we can slide the pitch up and down um but what uh, what i recognize as people come to the classes is that they're playing a quarter of that instrument you know and they've set limits whether it's through how resonant they are which resonant spaces they have access to they might just be speaking up here they just be using a little bit of resonance up here or it's all down here you know the manly voice um so we're trying to open up access to all of these different resonant spaces more pitch you know i used to speak pretty much down here like this but now i'm trying to explore more of the pitch and the expression the, the richness of it more, more expression that it gives me um catches people's attention you know and it's really just about that how can i expand my voice to be a, a little bit more impactful uh, but people are afraid because it's change especially around the voice is quite significant one of the, one of the things that people come to the class with and it it always it's, it's a real shame because they get a lot of feedback from their peers or their family about their voices as occasionally they'll be like oh you're 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 very quiet you mumble things like that it's all shit sticks with people because they become very self-conscious and it's i want people to ignore that feedback because maybe they maybe that person didn't hear them for whatever reason but it's quite damaging that kind of feedback and it's a bit insensitive it's clumsy um and i i think unfortunately it makes people quite self-conscious and i have people coming to my classes that have big voices but they're self-conscious um and and i i want to throw that feedback out of the window and say no 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 you, your voice is really great as it is it's it's amazing what it's doing but with there's more there's more spaces there's op- there's doors to open more expression more forgiveness <laughs> i still stammer over the words but i have learned not to beat myself about up about it you know it's it's okay to do those things um but there's more exploration and it's it can carry on and on and on you know i still find myself tensing in my shoulders so i still find myself pushing my head forwards when i'm in a hurry uh, as if i'm going to as if it's going to help <laughs> uh so and i but it's just a bit of awareness and then you kind of bring yourself back to the to that okay i'm not going to do that i'm going to i'm going to walk from my from my legs more i'm going to not, not push myself and put tension in my shoulders um but yeah it, it's really deconditioning a lot of this and to open up that wonderful instrument that we carry around with us and you hear it in the classes when people start to really relax and get more free and their voices become fuller and and the really interesting thing is when people say wow i suddenly heard that word in a way i hadn't 
And what we have to remember is each of us have the ability to communicate words like no other person. They're, it's unique as our fingerprints. The way you say something is unique to you and that's something to be celebrated. It's amazing because you have the power then to express words in a way that no one else will have heard it before. And having that power is something amazing. <laughs> so cast aside all of the, 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 the reasons to not do it and the barriers and just explore what the voice is capable of. Yeah, it's so cool. <laughs> okay. I'm so excited for my voice to like continue to change on this podcast and to be like, yeah, I've been doing the work. I guess to also speak more fluently, which is probably my thing. But anyway. Well, I mean, again, I always say that uh, where you are now is a good, is a good place. Um, it's just like learning a musical instrument. There's always more. There's always more pieces. You know, there's more lyric, lyric you can add lyricism to... Um, to, to the way we speak, we can explore. We can, some people like to try accents, you know. We, we like to try different resonant spaces. We like um, experiment with breath work to, to fill the space with, you know, with more volume and uh, all, of, all of these kind of things. But for me, like fundamentally, um, what I do, like even even today, you know, I'm ordering a coffee in a busy in a in a busy coffee uh, shop, and there's a lot of background noise. Um, for now, for a lot of people, it's quite disheartening to when people say sorry. <laughs> You know, they feel disheartened because they think, oh, no, my voice is failing me again. And the, the demons kick in and the, and the negative messaging, which we attach ourselves to, which we shouldn't because that's not useful. Um, so, you know, I've just got some basic technique where I think, right, um, I'm going to give myself a bit more breath. I'm going to use my belly to support me. I'm going to breathe deep and I'm going to... Uh, bring the air out from my from my belly and I'm going to say oh yeah can I have a coffee please and I'm just going to use apply that to use a bit bit more volume I'm going to slow down a little bit so the vowels have a bit more space because that's where the resonance lives in the vowels so people will hear that with a bit more clarity so slow down a little bit more breath for a bit more volume uh, and just target who I'm listening to and recognize that that's you know just a few basic techniques can help um and not to be afraid, it's, it, it can feel like a big deal doing that, but the more you do it, the more you get used to it and the more it seems normal. It's crazy for me that our voices, our, vo our vocal development ends with us learning how to talk. <clears throat> then that's it. We don't go back to it. Um, but there's so much more to explore, so much more to open up. Um, you know, it's, it's like we do it with our bodies. We go to the gym you know, we run, we do, we do exercise or you know, we do yoga, or, you know, we do all of these like disciplines to, to develop our bodies, but our voice, no, we just, it just sits there. So luckily, you know, I mean, there are, there are, there's training available um, and it makes a difference. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I think that more people should do it, but it, it is a bit harder to do because people are reluctant to make noise. Yeah, publicly, like in 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 the in the you know shared environments, you, it's quite exposing. But it's just because it's society, societally, it's it's not normal. I think in different cultures, they have different relationships with their voices, um, different acceptabilities of volume and so on. But um, it's it's there for the taking, and it's just through voice work that we can start to discover more and start to it just it just opens up the possibilities of your expression. 
So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Last three questions. Mm-hmm. How do you stay grounded? How do I stay grounded? Uh, you mean uh, physically, mentally, both? Uh, good, good question. Uh, deliberately open-ended, I suspect. <laughs> uh, I stay grounded, I think, by um, through gratitude. Through, through really trying to exercise gratitude through the things that I have. Because fretting about the things that I don't can really steal me away into, into a place that I don't feel grounded. Um, I feel grounded through um, keeping my body in use and through getting enough sleep, through drinking enough water. So just a few basics there. Um, And I think, um, yeah, seeing, keeping good friends who who are good for me, that helps me feel feel grounded. Is there a book that's had a big impact on you? You've mentioned a couple, but... Yeah, that is a really good question. I, I can list so many um what's the book that's had a big impact on me wow um i i think i mean obviously the um some of the occult occult books were you know talking about magic as a way of changing your mind but let's narrow it down to one book i there was a book, um, The Road Less Travelled, by M. Scott Peck, that, that, had, that really had a big effect on how I kind of viewed the idea of, like, good and evil. I know these are big words, but um, just in terms of chaos and focus. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, sorry, I'm going to list a load of books here. Oh, no, that's not what the question was. That's terrible. <laughs> um I very recently read um, there was a, there was a book called Compassion and Self Hate, which I thought was a great book by Theodore Rubin, which really had an effect on acknowledging that where I am right now is a great place to be, that kind of stuff. Um, the fiction of J.G. Ballard because it just paints a reality which I, I absolutely love. <laughs> Shall I stop now? I mean. <laughs> If there's another one you're desperate <laughs> to say. Uh, I mean, The Happiness Trap was, was a good one. Uh, that was quite influential and because it, it came into my teaching and I discovered acceptance and commitment therapy. Recently, I found the books by um, Sally Winston and Martin Seif. They, they are doing uh, books on, on, on anxiety, which I found extremely useful. Um, but yeah, but I, I just can't get enough. I have to say, a lot of self-help books, not that useful. I know this is blasphemy, but you have to take it. You you feel good whilst you're reading it, but the longevity of what you're being taught cannot always follow through. So the books where I've found utility and I've been able to carry them into my life have been have been really good, but they are few and far between. Mm. You know. Yeah, I wonder if you're talking about, I think some of the thing I see is people write a book based on something that worked in their life, but then then they're prescribing it to everyone. But it's like, Mm. that's not necessarily going to be the case for everyone else. Whereas that's why I'm more interested doing this format where it's like, we get to hear about 
your life and that might really resonate with some people but it's not like you're sitting here saying here's how you figure out life do x y and z because and i feel like some self-help books are kind of that category i think so yeah and i think i think a lot of self-help books have practical advice at quite a superficial level about like productivity books for example about you know how to develop new habits or how to arrange your day and all that kind of stuff uh, which may work for some, like you say, not for others. But I think what they're missing is the motivation to do things and how you actually instill motivation. And that's that's the hard thing. Because you can read something and go, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but at the same time, you can't go away and then put it into practice. And the good books are the things which I think penny drops and you go oh right okay that yeah I can change myself a little bit doing this and they are few and far between mm. you know if you go to the self-help section there will be some but um, yeah you have you have to be aware that it's going to be some of them are too long those books <laughs> mm. and they're they're written to fill a book um, some of them are, some of them are great you know I mean the, the more kind of research-based ones the more kind of um, fact-based ones can appeal to me because there's something there which clearly is is proven to work but again putting these things into practice is is kind of hard we all know mindfulness is is good for you but isn't it hard to do even 10 minutes a day Mm. it's pretty tough so how do you put that book down and then put that into practice okay last question (laughs) what Three words describe the best version of you. <laughs> um, oh, okay, so three words that describe the best version of me. Let, that's, this is where I would ask you to pause the recording and give me 45 minutes to think about <laughs> it. Maybe decisive would be one of, <laughs> one of those words. Okay, I think um, compassionate. Um, focused and creative (laughs) I'll stop there great (laughs) how about Um, you do you get asked that question yeah and I feel like it changes every time I think (laughs) it's like I don't know what I say. I think the first time I was like honest, brave, and kind maybe or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But then I was like, I'm just, I don't know. I'm always honest. I can't really help that. So that's not really... Because I'm like, is the question like who you aspire to, you know, when you turn up as the best version of yourself? Yeah. I don't know. It's it, yeah, no, they're good, they're good ones though. I mean, I think that this is the thing. I um, I I think um, it relates to self compassion. If you those questions like that really reflect where you are right now at this present moment, and um, we we have to celebrate that. And if you if I ask you this in an hour, it's probably going to be different. And I think this is the thing. We as as people, we tend to fix things as if that they're, they're, they're unchanging, and you know, like the cliche goes change is, is the only constant so it's great to hear like in the moment what 
what, how you feel, what are important to you. But that's three words from thousands, and then I'd be fascinated to hear what it is tomorrow and, and the day after that, because it starts to reveal what's going on inside. So, mm. um, But I think it's a good question, though, because it does make you think about what your values are. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, one thing that um, I've learned not to do is to go over these questions again and again and think, damn, I should have answered that way, because that is one of those non-productive things about going back to the past and then saying right I'm gonna I, this is what I should have done because that just uh, provokes anxiety and it's just it's absolutely futile um, so that's why I think we should just celebrate that was that answer there and then and then you know carry on with the with with how the the present moment unfolds in front of us definitely okay thanks so much wait where can people find you if you want them to be able to find you or find like voice resources yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I do I did have a website, Ian Taylor Voice, but I um, it hasn't been alive. I might have to resurrect it. <laughs> yeah, before the podcast comes out. Um, I yeah, I mean, I teach at the City Lit. I teach Use Your Voice assertively, um, but only once a year. In the term, in the starts in September. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I think. Um, I don't have much of a presence online and I need to fix that. Uh, and I don't have much of a social media presence either. Uh, but I think it's time to resurrect my website. So if people did want to get in touch, uh, iantaylorvoice.co.uk or .com. I can't remember that. It's been a while. I need to. I do need to pay more attention to my presence. Uh, I am hoping to put some of my training out there uh, soon. And um, there is more to come uh, online-wise. But I'm a bit superstitious. If I tell people my plans, they won't happen. So, Okay, uh, so watch this space. Watch this space, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, feel free to share it with someone. And also, um, a random 23-year-old just messaged me on Instagram and told me he found the podcast through the algorithm. So... It actually does help if you review the podcast and subscribe or follow. And then you get to find out about future episodes as well. Review or rate, you know what I mean. Anyway, it would truly make my day. So thank you in advance.